0: Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits the West Bank, Iraq, and Turkey as the White House tries to deal with the increased fighting between Israel and Hamas. It's Monday, November 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, questions over Israel's effort to destroy Hamas and what would
1: follow. If you want to replace Hamas, who is going to come afterwards? What is going to be in the day after? This is the big question.
0: Also concerns about what the impact of reducing the number of polling places in Kentucky could have ahead of tomorrow's statewide elections. And this hour, we take a look at some Massachusetts solar farms that are also home to bees, rabbits, plants, and other wildlife.
2: I would love to see this along the interstates and, you know, all these places where we have these panels. How beautiful would it be if you had this instead of grass?
0: Patriots lose mostly cloudy near 50 today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Israel's military says it has effectively divided the northern and southern parts of Gaza. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. This comes ahead of an expected Israeli advance into Gaza's largest city.
4: Israeli forces have basically encircled Gaza City and cut off phone, 4G, and internet services. One Palestinian service provider says it's working to gradually restore connectivity. This is after Israeli airstrikes hit two refugee camps in central Gaza, killing scores of residents, according to local health officials. The king of neighboring Jordan tweeted photos of his country's military airdropping urgent medical aid to a Jordanian field hospital there. Local officials say the death toll in Gaza is around 10,000 after Hamas militants killed more than 1,400 people in Israel and took more than 240 hostage. The U.S. has been urging Israel to pause its attacks for humanitarian reasons. CIA Director William Burns is visiting Israel today. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The United Nations is appealing for well over $1
3: billion to cover life-saving aid to millions of people in Gaza and the West Bank. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva the aid is supposed to last only through the end of this year. The UN reports the situation in Gaza has grown increasingly desperate
5: following the massive bombardments in the territory. UN humanitarian spokesman Jens Lagerke says priority needs are for food, water, health care, shelter and hygiene.
6: Our ability to ease the suffering of the Palestinian population will depend on adequate funding, safe and sustained access to all people in need wherever they are, sufficient flow of humanitarian supplies and,
7: importantly, fuel.
5: Israel refuses to allow fuel into the Gaza Strip, saying Hamas is hoarding fuel for military purposes. The UN is calling for a humanitarian pause to allow critical aid to enter Gaza. For NPR
3: News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to testify today in his New York civil fraud trial. NPR's Marie Andrusevich tells us his court appearance follows testimony last week from two other defendants in the case, his two eldest sons.
4: Trump is the only witness expected to testify today, according to a state attorney. The frontrunner for the 2024 GOP nomination has already taken the stand once, briefly, to answer questions about comments the judge ruled violated a gag order. When Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump testified last week, the former president said he was sad to see his sons, quote, being persecuted in a political witch hunt. Trump's daughter, Ivanka, who is not a co-defendant, is expected to testify later in the week.
3: NPR's Marie Andrusovich reporting. Trump and his sons are accused of wrongly inflating the cost of some of their properties to get better deals from banks. You're listening to NPR News. Jury selection starts today for the man accused of using a hammer to hit the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and of attempted kidnapping. The attack on Paul Pelosi happened more than a year ago. The suspect, David DePapp, has pleaded not guilty in the federal case. Over the weekend in Arizona, the Apache Stronghold Group welcomed faith leaders from around the country to their sacred site. It's inside the Tonto National Forest east of Phoenix. From member station KJZZ, Gabriel Pitarazio reports they are opposing a planned copper mine in the area.
8: The Apaches blessed themselves and burn tobacco before letting their settler siblings, as they say, walk around the campfire twice. Mennonites, evangelical Christians, Jews, and others prayed underneath the shade of sacred trees for Oak Flat, a holy site where the Apache believe mountain spirits reside. Dr. Wensler Nosey Sr., the founder of Apache Stronghold, says those spirits could be disrupted if a planned copper mine
9: is approved. This is not an Apache fight, it's a fight for religion. Because once the United States wins this court case, then it's the precedence that is set across this country.
8: Earlier this year, a federal appeals court heard the Apache's case following a prior court ruling against them. For NPR News, I'm Gabriel Pietarazio at Oak Flat.
3: Experts say Earth is getting to see a burst of the Southern Torrid's meteor shower this week. The shooting stars have already been active, but the American Meteor Society says the shower will peak this week. Some of these
0: meteors can glow brighter than Venus. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maura Healy is bracing for the state's shelter system to reach capacity this week. There are just a few dozen slots left before the state hits the 7,500 family cap set by the governor. And 40 to 50 families are arriving every day from outside the state to seek shelter. Healy told WCVBs on the record that the state is entering a new phase of the response to the influx of migrants.
5: What we're hoping to see, though, is that we see fewer numbers coming in and we're able to create more capacity by exiting more people from these shelters. It's also the case that we've had churches and other organizations step up Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, partner with us on placing people.
0: She called on the Biden administration to help expedite migrants' work permits and provide more resources to free up space in the shelters. Public schools in Everett have a new acting superintendent. The school committee appointed Bill Hart to the role. The Boston Globe reports Hart serves as the chairman of the city's board of assessors. He's stepping in for Superintendent Priya Tahiliani. She's on paid leave following allegations of a hostile work environment. She denies those allegations. Tahiliani is Everett's first superintendent of color. The archery hunting season at Blue Hills Reservation kicks off this morning. It's part of an effort to cull the area's deer population. Hunting deer will be allowed through November 22nd. Archers are only allowed to hunt Monday through Thursday. Hikers visiting the Blue Hills are being asked to wear bright colors. It's 707.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
0: The Patriots lost to the Washington Commanders 20-17 to yesterday in Foxborough. New England tried to mount a comeback on the final drive, but it ended with an interception. Head coach Bill Belichick believes the Pats lost the game well before that.
10: I had a chance here at the end, just couldn't make enough plays. Um, and obviously had, you know, plenty of opportunities along the way that we need to make more out of. So um, just a disappointing result.
0: The loss dropped the Pats' record to 2-7. and seven. They'll take on the Indianapolis Colts next Sunday in Germany. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. The Bruins are on the road against the Dallas Stars. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be near 50. Cloudy with a chance of showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 40s. A cloudy start tomorrow, but becoming mostly sunny. It'll get to the mid-60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
13: And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. As Israel presses its military operation in Gaza, it says it will never again let Hamas rule the territory. But Here's a problem for Israel. Right now, no one else wants to rule the Gaza Strip. NPR's Greg Myrie spoke with several Israeli security experts about the limited options.
14: Israel's immediate goal of driving out Hamas is a major military challenge. It's likely to take two to six months, according to Yaakov Amadror. He's a former general and national security advisor in Israel.
12: We will not allow an organization to be on the other side of the fence with capabilities to attack the civilians and to launch rockets into Israel.
14: Israeli troops have swiftly taken over much of northern Gaza and encircled Gaza City. But taking full control of the territory may be the easy part. The more daunting challenge could be finding a replacement who's willing and able to run Gaza. Amadur says Israel, which withdrew its troops from Gaza in 2005, does not plan another extended stay. We don't want to stay there. This is very clear for us. We don't want to take responsibility for two million Palestinians. So who might take on such a monumental task? Orna Mizrahi, a former Israeli deputy national security Advisor, concedes there's no clear candidate.
1: If you want to replace Hamas, who is going to come afterwards? What is going to be in the day after? This is
14: the big question. The Palestinian Authority nominally leads the Palestinians in the West Bank. It used to run Gaza as well. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that, over time, a revitalized Palestinian Authority could return to Gaza. But that seems unrealistic at the moment, says Mizrahi. I'm not sure that the Palestinian Authority will want to come in after Israel. In fact, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who turns 88 next week, reportedly told the U.S. last month, I will not return to Gaza on top of an Israeli tank. Hamas took charge in Gaza by winning Palestinian elections in 2006. The following year, Hamas militants drove the Palestinian Authority out in a bloody battle. Since then, Israel and Hamas have fought repeatedly. But Israel never sought to drive out the militant group. This time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the goal is to completely destroy Hamas. Anything less than that will be viewed as a failure by the public. Chuck Freilich is a former Israeli deputy national security advisor. Whether you think it's the right thing
10: to do or not, I mean, the government may have just roped themselves into doing that.
14: Privately, Israeli officials say they'd like to bring in the international community to help run a future Gaza. But prospects aren't good. Neighboring Egypt isn't interested. It's long sought to keep Gaza's chaos from spilling over its border. Wealthy Arab states like Qatar cut large checks to Gaza, but show no interest in getting directly involved. The United Nations provides basic services there, like food, health care, and schooling, but is not equipped to govern. In addition, Freilich says, Hamas would not accept rule by outsiders.
10: How do you keep them in power? Because it's clear that the remnants of Hamas or whoever will be doing everything to kill the guy who's in power.
14: Yaakov Amador says Israel should remember an important precedent. Israel invaded southern Lebanon in 1982 to drive out Palestinians attacking northern Israel. Israel did push out the Palestinians. But then a militant Lebanese group, Hezbollah, emerged. Israel finally left southern Lebanon in 2000. Hezbollah continues to fire rockets into northern Israel to this day. We
12: learned on the hard way in Lebanon, We cannot be the kingmakers. You cannot come from outside and determine to the
14: Palestinians who will be their government. They have to make decisions. They have to make the choice. But right now, it's hard to see any good choices. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Now to Ukraine,
12: where the top military commander says efforts to retake land occupied by Russian forces have reached a stalemate. That has angered Ukraine's president, who's been sending messages of hope and victory to exhausted Ukrainians. The clash comes at a challenging time for Ukraine as its allies are distracted by the war in the Middle East. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is in Kyiv, and she's with us now to tell us more about this. Good morning, Joanna.
15: Good morning, Michelle.
12: So let's start with this rift between Ukraine's president and its top military commander. What set this off?
15: Yeah, so Michelle, the rift is not exactly new, and the tension has to do in part with how the two men communicate messaging about this war. Uh, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, his name is Valery Zaluzhnyi. He is widely considered a talented military strategist, and he is also a realist. A counteroffensive launched this June to take back occupied land has had limited progress. And a few days ago, General Zaluzhnyi published an essay in The Economist magazine saying, look, we cannot move quickly on retaking our occupied land without advanced weapons. He says Ukraine needs state-of-the-art drones and electronic warfare to achieve air superiority, and that's what he says will break the stalemate on the battlefield. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky he's trying to spin this narrative of hope and strength, and not just to exhausted Ukrainians, but also to Ukraine's allies. Uh, one of Zelensky's advisors told reporters that you know General Zeluzny's General remarks that this war is death could hurt Ukraine and help Russia. How, how do you think this is playing
12: out among Ukrainians? Do you have a sense of what they think needs to happen for this war to end?
15: Yeah, well, Michelle, what's been really obvious to me in the few months uh, I've been crisscrossing this country, uh, in my reporting, I found that Ukrainians are very tired and they're very anxious. You know, they've been at war for 621 days. Uh, they understand that Ukraine is losing its best soldiers and they worry Western support won't last. Uh, there's just been There was this recent survey by the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology, and it showed that trust in the government has actually fallen dramatically as the counteroffensive has slowed. And Ukrainians tell me that you know the stress of this long, protracted war—it's you know, it's just starting to wear them out. Uh, I was just in the southern city of Kherson, which is attacked nearly every day by Russian forces, and I and I met Ludmila Verskun. She's in her 70s, and she was here when the city was occupied by for, for, was occupied for months by Russian by Russian forces. She's moved her bed to this corner of her apartment. It doesn't have any windows, and she's hiding under blankets during attacks.
11: She's
15: saying, I'm not sure what was scarier, living under occupation or under this constant shelling. But like most Ukrainians, she also does not want to trade any Ukrainian territory for a peace deal with, with Russia. And neither do General Zeluzhny or President Zelensky. This weekend, when the European Commission's president was in Kyiv, Zelensky made that very clear.
16: He
15: said for us to sit down with Russia and give it something, something that will not happen. Mm-hmm. Joanna, before we let you go, Ukraine is continuing
12: mm-hmm. to fight this counteroffensive. What's the latest on that?
15: So, you know, the front line in the south, it's stalled right now, it's heavily landmined, and so the Ukrainians are struggling to advance. And and Ukraine is battling strong Russian offensives in the east. The Russians are hammering the town of Avdivka in the Donetsk region in an effort to conquer it. The Russians are also trying to recapture the Kupiansk area in the northeast, which the Ukrainians liberated last year. Uh, But Ukrainian forces have made some strategic strikes on Russian military targets in Crimea, the peninsula that Russia legally annexed in 2014. Just this weekend they hit a Russian shipyard with long distance missiles. The Ukrainians want to show that with the right weapons, this war does not have to end in a stalemate. That's NPRs, Joanna Kakissis in Kiev. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>
13: Both big industries and the Biden administration are promoting a possible climate solution that involves trapping carbon dioxide from smokestacks and storing it underground. But lots of communities are pushing back, and now the U.S. Forest Service is stepping in with its own plan. Here's NPR's Julia Simon.
17: To understand why the U.S. Forest Service is getting involved, you have to know about this proposed climate solution called carbon capture and storage.
11: By capturing and storing carbon dioxide from polluting sources, we can make real progress in tackling
17: the climate crisis That's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm in an agency video. Some industries, like cement or gas power plants, emit a bunch of carbon dioxide that heats the planet. With this tech, the idea is to capture that pollution from smokestacks, inject it underground, and store it. There are billions of dollars for this tech in recent climate legislation and direct investments from the Biden administration. Now the Forest Service is proposing changing a rule so this CO2 could be stored under the country's national forests and grasslands. But environmental groups and researchers have concerns. CO2 pollution will need to be transported via pipeline for storage, says June Sekera, a research fellow with Boston University.
5: To get the CO2 to the injection site in the midst
17: of our national forests, they've got to build huge pipelines Sakara says building those CO2 pipelines may require clearing a lot of trees. And there are concerns about pipeline safety. If a pipeline breaks, CO2 can displace oxygen and can be hazardous, says Victoria Bogdan Tejeda, attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity.
18: It's a deadly asphyxiant whether it leaks near a town or whether it leaks near a forest. Across the country,
17: locals have been pushing back against proposed carbon dioxide pipelines in their communities. Last month, Navigator CO2 Ventures canceled a proposed multi-state CO2 pipeline in the Midwest, citing unpredictable state regulatory processes. The Forest Service did not respond to NPR's questions about potentially allowing CO2 storage on national forests. Public comments on the proposed rule change are open until January 2nd. Julia Simon, NPR News.
19: And
13: then there were none. No more army bases named for Confederate generals. The years-long renaming process has been completed. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a preview of the third GOP presidential primary debate coming up on Wednesday night in Miami. It's 720.
20: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at
9: WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis through the Fuss Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention, and therapeutic programming and training for valued clinicians. And the Boston Philharmonic, Benjamin Zander leads Shostakovich, Britten, and Bartok with pianist Benjamin Hawkman, November 17th at Symphony Hall, bostonphil.org.
2: I'm Peter O'Dowd. In the spring of 2016, a wildfire ignited in the forest of northern Alberta that would forever change the lives of the people who lived in its path. The towering inferno turned 2,500 homes to ash and gave us a hint of what's to come.
20: We haven't seen what climate change has in store for us in the 21st century.
2: That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Mostly overcast today with a high near 50. It's 43 degrees in Boston.
21: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvin Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station,
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Virginia voters
12: decide this week whether the state legislature will remain under Democratic control or Republicans will take over. And that could determine whether Virginia joins the rest of the South in restricting abortion rights, which is why abortion rights advocates and opponents are pouring millions into these races. Here's Jad Khalil of VPM News. Dozens of voters gather in
22: front of a stage waiting for Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. It's cold. When Yunkin comes out, he's in a down red vest instead of his signature fleece. He's in campaign mode.
21: What
2: time is it? Time to win!
22: He's here to campaign for three suburban Republicans.
2: We got work to do. We started in 2021
6: and now we gotta finish the work. And that work is holding the House,
23: flipping the Senate.
22: The state Senate is controlled by Democrats. That means they can block Yunkin and House Republicans' attempts to put new restrictions on abortion in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. That decision energized Democrats, seeking to preserve current Virginia law, which generally allows abortion. In 2022 congressional elections, Democrats won key areas that Yunkin had previously carried. Republicans needed a new strategy.
4: Here's the truth. There is no ban. Virginia Republicans support a reasonable 15-week limit
22: Youngkin put out this ad early. He and other GOP candidates have been strategic in messaging around their agenda, telling voters in a swing state that they don't want a ban on abortion just restrictions.
24: People assume that Republicans all have one opinion on ban.
22: Republican State Senate candidate Siobhan Dunavant even talks about providing choices despite supporting new abortion restrictions.
24: We should keep abortion legal with enough time for a woman to have the opportunity to consider her choices. This is a real challenge for women.
22: Dunavant is a practicing OBGYN. She aligns with Youngkin's support for a 15-week limit on abortion as long as the exceptions include one for severe fetal anomalies. But she insists it's not a ban.
24: A ban, if you look it up in the dictionary, means none, prohibited. That is fear-mongering language that they're using.
22: 93% of abortions took place at or before 13 weeks, according to 2020 data from the CDC, and another 6% between 13 and 20 weeks abortion advocates say that the most affected by a potential 15-week ban are those who are rural, poor, or experiencing domestic partner abuse. This conversation about X or Y number of weeks isn't actually effective, says Celinda Lake, a Democratic pollster.
25: 15-week bans, 6-week bans, people get very confused about that. People aren't very good at math or biology, as it turns out. And people are like, I want to hear... Do you support people's fundamental freedom to make these health care decisions for themselves?
22: Lake says Democrats are keeping it simple on the campaign trail.
25: I think the Virginia Democrats have been very, very disciplined about not getting into the weeds and the details. Because for voters, there's a fundamental freedom and right at stake here.
22: In many ways, Peyton Nichols is exactly who Republicans are trying to target. She votes in a swing area that traditionally tilts blue. But she says she's personally against abortion.
26: I feel like I'm a little bit uh, outsider on that and everything.
22: But she says the GOP messaging didn't convince her.
26: I just think that it's really important that the women can make the choices.
22: Other voters like Pete Johnson, who oppose abortion rights, are voting for candidates who support less stringent restrictions than the total bans they want.
27: I am a Republican, but I'm also a Christian. So it's tough to put any kind of weak
28: on abortion. I'd rather we don't have it at all.
22: In Ohio, voters are casting ballots directly on abortion rights. But it's more complicated here in Virginia.
28: One thing that's really difficult
22: to untangle is this is not a referendum on Tuesday. This is an election amongst candidates who stand for a variety of policies. Brian Robinson is a Republican public affairs consultant in Georgia. He says he'd look for where abortion was the deciding issue in Virginia versus things like crime or inflation. I would need some convincing to see that this is top of mind for voters. If there's a case like that in Virginia, it could be applicable to Georgia and to other swingy states. Virginia is a place that's very diverse, racially and economically. And it has a reputation as being sort of a temperature check on national politics. Voters and politicos are paying attention to the Old Dominion, knowing it could be a preview for 2024. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Henrico, Virginia.
13: Chicago-born artist Simone Lee was the first Black woman to represent the U.S. at the prestigious Venice Biennale. Now, selections from two decades of her ceramic, bronze, and video creations can be seen at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington. Our colleague Olivia Hampton has more.
29: Simone Lee's sculptures can be massive, like the 24-foot bronze welcoming visitors at the museum's plaza. It's modeled after an African Dimba headdress with sagging breasts for a head, a concave shape, like a satellite dish. Her sculptures reference African and diaspora traditions. At times they suggest figures, but without eyes and limbs missing.
23: I started using forms that I would call anthropomorphic. And as time has moved on, uh, the work has become more and more figurative. Often there are forms in my work that refer to enclosure or dwelling or architecture, Making monumental forms of black women is just absolutely thrilling and as fun as you would imagine that it is.
29: Most of Lee's work begins with clay, a humble material historically dismissed in fine arts as crafty and utilitarian. But Lee found it liberating to fly under the radar earlier in her career because she was working with ceramics.
23: I was largely ignored and that really helped me because I feel like I was able to develop a lot of work as an artist in relative obscurity. This piece looks like a brooch. The center has plantain forms, plantain being a very significant fruit for Jamaican-Americans. These plantains were cast in porcelain that was made for porcelain doll makers, so they were pre-stained to mimic different skin color.
29: Lee wants to make visible the work of artists who have long been ignored simply because of the color of their skin.
23: African-American women artists uh, like Meadow Fuller, Elizabeth Catlett, it's not like the work didn't exist, it's just that it's become um, more visible and I'm very happy about it.
29: The Simone Lee Retrospective is at the Hirshhorn until March, before heading to Los Angeles in June. Olivia Hampton, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBOR's Morning Edition. How Massachusetts is becoming a champion of using solar farms to encourage biodiversity and green energy. It's 7.30.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC and the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. CIA Director William Burns reportedly is in Israel today as the Israeli military continues to attack Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Lauren Frayer is in Tel Aviv.
4: The CIA is typically tight-lipped, but local media say William Burns may be looking to expand intelligence sharing with Israel, including any information on how to locate the more than 240 hostages Hamas is holding in Gaza. Israeli intelligence officials have been criticized for failing to detect the October 7th Hamas plot before it was too late.
6: The fate of those hostages was among the issues discussed today in Turkey by Secretary of State Antony Blinken as he held meetings in Ankara. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to testify today in a New York courtroom. NPR's Andrea Bernstein says Trump and his family are involved in a $250 million civil fraud case brought by the state's attorney general.
25: Even before the trial began, the judge in the case ruled that Trump and his co-defendants are liable for persistent and repeated fraud. The Trumps, the judge found, lied over and over about their property values in order to get better loans and insurance rates and avoid paying taxes. But there are still six more causes of action to rule on, including conspiracy charges and insurance fraud. And most importantly, how much Trump will have to pay.
6: This is NPR News from Washington. Jury selection begins today in California in the trial of David DePapp. He's the man charged with attacking the husband of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a hammer at the couple's home in San Francisco last October. Paul Pelosi was 82 at the time. He suffered serious injuries. In Nevada, thousands of union employees in the hospitality industry are threatening to walk off the job this week in Las Vegas. NPR's Joe Hernandez has more. 35,000 workers at 18 properties will go on strike Friday morning if no new deal is reached with MGM Resorts, Caesars Entertainment and Wynn Resorts. The Culinary and Bartenders Union says if it happens, it'll be the largest hospitality worker strike in U.S. history. The labor dispute comes at a tricky time for Las Vegas, which is currently transforming into a giant racetrack. Later this month, Formula One is scheduled to hold its first race in the city since 1982, a major sporting event that's expected to pack Las Vegas with tourists. Union officials are asking race attendees not to cross any picket lines or patronize any hotels or casinos involved in a labor dispute. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Later today in Delaware, President Biden is expected to announce billions of dollars will be spent to upgrade passenger rail in the Northeast Corridor from Washington, D.C. to Boston. Dow futures are up 17 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Governor Maura Healy will swear in members of a new state council for veterans services today. The council will work to assess the state's current veterans programs. Healy says the council is needed to elevate services for veterans across Massachusetts. City and federal officials representing Boston plan to host a clinic today about public service loan forgiveness. They plan to share resources with government and nonprofit workers. Staff will help borrowers figure out their federal loan types and enroll in income driven repayment plans. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Senator Elizabeth Warren are expected to speak at the event. A Boston champion for women in politics plans to wind down her operations next year. Barbara Lee tells the Boston Globe she'll wind down the Barbara Lee Family Foundation by the end of next year. Lee has helped women, including Governor Healy and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, launch their political careers. Her staff says she's given more than $2 million in donations to female candidates. It's 734.
7: WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com/go. The Patriots lost to the Washington
0: Commanders 20 to 17 yesterday in Foxborough. The Patriots will play the Colts next Sunday in Frankfurt, Germany. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Dallas Stars, while the Celtics visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. Near 50 today, under mostly cloudy skies. Upper 40s tonight, and there's a slight chance of showers tomorrow cloudy skies gradually clear, we'll have a mostly sunny day in the mid-60s. It's 43 degrees in Boston. You're with
21: WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
13: And i Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The third Republican presidential primary debate will be held this week in Miami. Now, a lot's happened since the last GOP debate was held in late September. Israel went to war against Hamas. A rebellion in the House GOP conference led to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. Then, after weeks, a new speaker, Mike Johnson, was voted in. Also, former Vice President Mike Pence dropped out of the race and frontrunner Donald Trump has made several court appearances. Now, he's due to take the witness stand today in his civil fraud trial in New York. So we're wondering how might all of these events affect what's going on with the Republican primary debates. Political strategist Rena Shaw is on the line. So, uh, Rena, Trump uh, won't be among the five or so candidates expected to debate on Wednesday. Which candidate of the ones who are left has managed to move the needle the most since the last debate?
28: Good morning. It seems that Nikki Haley is the candidate to beat going into this third debate this week. What we know right now is that Nikki Haley has managed to get some heads turning with her performance at the first and second debate. The question now becomes, how much runway is she able to really make up between herself and Trump? That is going to be the question du jour as we even move past the third debate. It's taking place in Miami. Of course, there's somebody on the stage who runs that state. The governor of Florida, uh, we are looking at Ron DeSantis as a person who was the one to be coming into this primary season. And now we're not sure what his performance is going to look like on the stage. But one thing is for sure, he still manages to hang 10, as the youngsters would call it, with Mickey (laughs) Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. That trio is one to watch. Is it a home state advantage for DeSantis, you think? I wouldn't be so sure. Mm. Let's not forget where he seems to lack sometimes on the issues. Uh, Abortion is something he has never quite come out and talked about his exact actions in the state, which were done in the dark of night, the six-week ban. Now, Another thing that Ron DeSantis seems to suffer from, and this has been long talked about in in Republican circles, particularly in Washington, where he was once a congressman, is his likability. As he's been on the trail in these early states, people are not so sure he's very charismatic. And also sometimes he's a bit awkward on the stage in my estimation. So that is a tough bit because something about Trump would always seem to win out. And it was his supporters who would say that he was somebody who seemed approachable, who seemed very steadfast and strong in his beliefs and would voice them loudly. Not something Ron DeSantis does.
13: Even though Trump has not taken part in any of the debates, it seems as if he still has a grip on the GOP. Is that still the case that Donald Trump is clearly still in control of the Republican Party?
28: Well, Certainly with the exit from the field of former Vice President Pence, that puts more light on how Trump seems rather unbeatable when his own VP couldn't seem to make up for that very fact that uh, he could be a top challenger to these others in the field. When I think about the Trump alternatives, I don't think so much about how everyone still seems to coalesce around President Trump. Uh, And I'm talking those on Capitol Hill and particularly in elected circles around the country. I'm looking at the base his faction of supporters within today's GOP, they have been dwindling in size. The empirical data shows that they perhaps are loud and do respond to to the polls quite a bit, but they may not be that turnout that could really uh, tip the election in the favor of the Republicans when it comes to putting up a candidate in the general. So I would caution folks, be wary of the polls about Trump.
13: Political strategist Rena Shaw is a former senior congressional aide to two Republican members of the House. Uh, Rena, thank you very much for your time.
28: Thank you.
12: Kentucky voters are heading to the polls for statewide elections, but many may have to figure out where to vote or make a new plan to get there. That's because several counties have consolidated polling places, a move that is raising some concerns about ballot access.
8: Kentucky Public Radio's Justin Hicks has this report. Lewis County is one of the most sparsely populated places in Kentucky. The rolling hills and cow pastures are divided up into 14 voting precincts. And for decades, each had their own voting location. But for the general election, which ends Tuesday, the county will only have four polling sites.
25: There's going to be hurt feelings. It's not done with malice.
8: It's just we don't have any money. What do you do? That's Leslie Collier, Lewis County clerk. She says the reality here is that her budget to run elections is just $50,000 a year. And with that money, she struggles to keep voting machines up to date and poll workers paid. It was a tough decision, the County
25: Board of Elections. There were doubts and a lot of discussion, but it was kind of something that we had to do just money-wise.
8: Even though she wasn't required to during the primary, call your printed vinyl yard signs and put them in all the precincts people had voted at for decades.
23: Nothing super fancy. But that's what I
8: did. It just says vote at any of the four county vote centers on Election Day. Collier isn't alone in consolidating polling locations. For this election, more than half of Kentucky's counties have switched from neighborhood polling locations to just a few centralized vote centers. Kentucky Secretary of State Michael Adams, a Republican, says, like in many places, the change to vote centers was really brought on by the pandemic.
10: And turned out to be so popular that voters wanted to keep it, so
30: we did.
8: But Adams says he has some serious concerns about the vote centers in some places, including Lewis County. Fewer voting locations can disenfranchise voters and mean there are fewer backups if something goes wrong. Adams says he called Collier to discuss his worries and told her he'd be watching her voter turnout closely
2: this election. This is something that you have legislators in both parties getting more and more
10: frustrated about, like... We gave you this law to expand access, and if you abuse it, we're just going to take it away from you. We're not there yet, but we're watching it.
8: In future elections, Secretary Adams says he wants state lawmakers to implement guardrails to prevent too
10: much consolidation. What I'd like is something that's very clear, black and white, that says you've got to have no more than X thousand voters to vote at
8: one location, right? Megan Bellamy is with the National Voting Rights Lab, a group that favors expanded voting access. She says since the pandemic, they've seen nearly 100 bills concerning vote centers filed in states across the country. And Bellamy says the adoption of the vote center model doesn't really seem to be partisan either. It's more of a rural versus urban issue.
4: Urban centers may not have the same need to create. A vote center. It's already convenient enough. It's accessible enough versus in some of the more rural areas where they're looking to maybe fill some gaps where it comes to their funding.
8: While her group advocates for vote centers to be used in addition to precincts,
4: Bellamy says consolidation isn't all bad. Where you're thinking about, you know, convenience and all those factors that we outlined is working for many voters. Back in
8: Kentucky, Secretary Adams says counties are set to get some more funding for new technology. And that could mean more places to vote in the next election. For NPR News, I'm Justin Hicks in Louisville.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, former President Donald Trump is set to testify in New York today in his civil fraud trial. Mostly cloudy in upper 40s today. Tonight it stays in the 40s and remains overcast. There's a slight chance of showers overnight and into tomorrow morning. Then clearing skies make way for a mostly sunny day in the mid-60s. It's 43 degrees in Boston.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
0: Employers in Massachusetts remain ambivalent about the direction of the economy. That's according to the monthly Business Confidence Index released today by the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. The survey shows many business leaders feel favorably about consumer spending, but there are still worries about rising interest rates and the ability to find qualified workers. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission will hold a hearing today to consider whether to allow Plain Ridge Park to host live horse racing next year. The Plainville Casino has been the only venue in Massachusetts for live horse racing since June of 2019. The racetrack says it expects to have hosted just over 100 live races this year when the season ends this month. It's 745.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
13: And I'm Amy Martinez. When it comes to keeping our minds sharp, a new study adds to the evidence that physical activity can help slow down cognitive aging. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey.
31: Mary Beth Van Cleve lives in a retirement community in Portland, Oregon, with her wife and their cat, Irene. She started practicing Tai Chi when she was 75 years old. Now she's 86.
5: I guess that means 11 years, doesn't it?
31: Which kind of makes me a
5: newbie, but it's become a very important part of my life.
31: And when I asked her where she practices her Tai Chi forms?
5: I do them everywhere.
31: (laughs) Tai Chi is a form of martial arts. The practice incorporates a series of movements known as forms that are slow and gentle with a focus on breath. Sometimes described as moving meditation... Watching from the outside, it doesn't look like much, but Van Cleave says that's a misconception.
5: Because we are working very hard, and there are so many times when I've avoided a fall because of the balance that Tai Chi gives
31: me. The practice helps maintain strength, and it's easy on the joints. And in addition to better balance, new research adds to the evidence that practicing Tai Chi can slow down cognitive decline. Here's study author Dr. Elizabeth Ekstrom, chief of geriatrics at Oregon Health and Science University.
5: In Tai Chi, you have to memorize the moves, right? And then you have to be able to execute them in a consistent pattern. So you're getting that physical
31: activity plus having some memory piece to it As part of the study, about 300 participants in their 70s and older who all had mild memory decline took a 10-minute test to gauge their cognitive function. Then for the next six months, some practiced Tai Chi and some did simple stretching exercises. It turned out those who did Tai Chi twice a week did much better on a follow-up test.
5: What our study showed was that on average, people in the standard Tai Chi group improved their scores by about one and a half. So you've basically just given yourself three extra years.
31: Ekstrom explains that people with mild cognitive decline typically lose about a half point per year on the cognitive test. But by practicing Tai Chi, the study suggests people can significantly slow down cognitive decline. What's new here is that Ekstrom also had participants add something to their practice to make it tougher. For instance, she'd have them spell a word forwards and backwards while they did their Tai Chi moves so that you're really forcing your brain to think hard while you're also
5: doing this very fluid
31: mind-body movement. It turns out people who tried this form of Tai Chi doubled their improvements on the test score.
5: Twice as much as with standard Tai Chi, and we've just given you six extra years of cognitive function, so that's a
31: lot. It's not clear whether everyone could benefit so much, and of course you have to stick with it to see the benefits.
5: If you're able to keep doing this two or three days a week on a routine basis, you're gonna get a lot of extra years before you hit
31: that decline
5: into dementia.
31: Hopefully adding quality years to the lifespan. Allison Aubrey, NPR News.
21: Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 825 here on WBUR, WBUR's Anthony Brooks brings us another story about local people reinventing their lives. Today, the third act story of a mother of two who overcame doubts to go back
32: to college. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org.
7: Two years ago, a former detective set out to track down an uncle who had been missing
11: for decades.
19: It says the date of death was July 19th, 2020, which would have made Uncle Caesar 64 years old. And it says place of disposition is City Cemetery at Hart Island.
7: We continue the Unmarked Graveyard series on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4
0: on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The Israeli military says it has split Gaza in two as it advances troops toward Gaza City. Former President Donald Trump is expected to testify today in a civil trial accusing him of inflating costs of properties to get better rates from banks. And the trial for the man accused of attacking the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gets underway today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
11: WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools.
0: It'll be mostly cloudy and near 50 today, still overcast tonight and in the 40s. There's a slight chance we'll see some showers overnight and into early tomorrow. Then it'll gradually become a mostly sunny day on Tuesday. Temperatures will rise to the mid-60s.
7: It's 44 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. This
0: is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoy.
7: There's a solar farm at the
0: Arnold Arboretum in Boston that's a little bit unusual. It's full of bees, thousands of them. And that's a good thing. It was one of the first pollinator-friendly solar farms built in Massachusetts. WBWAR's Barbara Moran reports that now the state is promoting the concept as a way to encourage green energy and biodiversity.
25: We're going to follow a little mulch path down this way.
1: In some ways, the one-acre solar farm at the Arnold Arboretum looks pretty typical. There are rows of steel posts holding blue solar panels up to the sky. But inside a gate underneath those panels, there's a jungle of wildflowers. Oh my God, it's so tall. It's like almost up to my chin. Look at all the bees! Oh my goodness! There's so many bees. We can walk around. We'll get a better.
19: There's some easier easier bumblebee access. They're everywhere.
1: Arnold Arboretum horticulturist Brendan Keegan points out why the bees are here. Local plants and flowers like milkweed, foxglove, lupin, And this is wild bergamot or bee balm. Bee balm is
2: another common name for it.
25: And they're, they're really loved by all sorts of pollinators.
2: It is just a buzzing hum of insects going nuts. Ned Friedman
1: is the director of the Arnold Arboretum. He says when they decided to build a new solar array, they wanted more than just green energy. They wanted an ecosystem.
2: Most solar farms have gravel or grass underneath. What I would call a monoculture, the antithesis of biodiversity. And so we saw this as an opportunity to change a monoculture of grass into something that supports the ecosystems of an urban environment. But building a pollinator meadow is a lot of work.
1: First, experts came up with a list of native plants that could grow in the shade, then hand-collected wild seeds. They cultivated seedlings in greenhouses, planted them, and spent the last few years hand-weeding the invasive species out. Three years in, the meadow is just getting established. But it already has lots of pollinating insects along with nesting birds, rabbits, foxes, and red-backed salamanders.
2: I would love to see this along the interstates and, and, you know, all these places where we had these panels. How beautiful would it be if you had this instead of grass?
1: The state of Massachusetts also likes this idea. In 2020, the state
2: created an
1: incentive program to encourage pollinator meadows at commercial solar farms. So far, nearly 50 projects have had their plans certified, and about 17 of those have been built. But the arboretum success can be tough to replicate for solar farms that don't have an army of botanists on hand.
3: It's around the corner, we'll be able to look up the hill.
1: Like this 30-acre solar farm in Douglas. It's been certified pollinator-friendly, but there aren't a lot of bees yet. Or flowers. Okay, so I'm looking out at this sea of solar panels, and it looks basically like grass underneath and nothing Um, special.
3: No, uh, it's unfortunately had its trim, so the
1: the flowers are a little bit limited at the moment because it was cut two weeks ago. That's Lawrence Cook with Pure Sky Energy, which runs this solar farm. He says a pollinator meadow needs regular mowing to suppress weeds as it gets established, a process that can take three to five years. This one still has a ways to go, And Cook says they never would have tried it without the state incentive. It gives them a fraction of a cent more per kilowatt hour for selling pollinator-friendly energy.
3: It was never implemented as a way to make money. It was done as a way to kind of cover your costs. And for the most part, it does that. But uh, if there's any issues in the establishment, it doesn't cover any of the additional costs.
1: A couple parts of this meadow got washed out by heavy rain and had to be replanted. Several other solar farms in the state have withdrawn from the incentive program over financial concerns. But Cook says they're sticking with it because it's, quote, the right thing to do. To build this solar farm, like many in Massachusetts, developers cut down acres of forest. The project was contentious. Cook hopes the meadow can address some of the habitat loss.
3: If you're going to do solar and you have to cut down trees, then I think pollinator is uh, the least you can do to kind of reset the balance with nature. And it's a different habitat, but it is a a needed and and important habitat
1: nonetheless. While some argue that cutting down forests for a solar farm is never a good idea, Massachusetts does want to dramatically increase its solar power by 2050. And where to put all those solar panels will continue to be controversial. Some solar will go onto rooftops, but some will be built on land. Proponents of pollinator-friendly solar say it could be a way to turn barren solar farms into living ecosystems and make green energy a little more green. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
13: These days, the answer to almost any question is just a few keystrokes
12: away. But before the Internet, searching for information could be much more time-consuming. So a lot of people turned to one publication that brought volumes of information together.
14: The hippies called it a hippie Bible. Steve Jobs called it the Internet before
13: the Internet. We called it access to tools. Stuart Brand was a co-founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, a kind of how-to guide for life in the 60s and 70s.
14: And, you know, for the price of a book, you could learn how to make guitars, but it didn't just as easily fix a motorcycle or raise goats or bees. By
12: 1972, the Whole Earth Catalog had sold more than a million copies and won the National Book Award. It also let readers tune in to what was then called the counterculture.
2: You open it up and there are you know, pictures of wagons and tractors, but also calculators and psychedelic imagery. It's like, wait a minute,
13: where is this world? Stanford University professor Fred Turner says it opened the door for a digital world. And so the computer becomes sort of a tool like the
2: ones formerly offered in the whole earth catalog. And the catalog itself becomes a model for an early and really important virtual community. Brand had a hand in one of the earliest
12: online communities when he pulled content from the original Whole Earth catalog to create the Whole Earth electronic link and give users a place to share ideas in real time. And that
13: led to real discourse. Thanks to the San Francisco Art Collective Gray Area, a nearly complete collection of Whole Earth publications now available for visitors to flip through online, putting the Internet before the Internet on the Internet. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin.
18: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Israeli officials say their troops are poised to enter Gaza City despite U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the region to urge a pause in the fighting. It's Monday, November 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, former President Donald Trump is set to testify today in his company's civil fraud trial. Also, teens at Maryland's juvenile detention centers say boredom in part led them to crime.
33: The youth that we serve, they make up stuff to do, and they're finding negative stuff to do to thrive that adrenaline.
27: And this hour. I'm walking across the parking lot with tears down
0: my eyes saying, oh my God, I'm in college. The third act story of Massachusetts resident Natalie Jones, a single mother who overcame fears to return to college. In sports, Patriots lose, mostly cloudy, near 50 today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. It's been about a month since Hamas attacked Israel, killing more than 1,400 people, mostly Israelis. Israel's military has responded with weeks of attacks in Gaza. The bombings have now killed more than 10,000 Palestinians. There are fears that war will spread in the region. Secretary of State Antony Blinken raced back to the Middle East. He concluded that visit today in Turkey.
10: We've also had very important conversations throughout this trip uh, with countries in the region on the role that everyone can play in making sure that the conflict doesn't expand, doesn't spread to other countries.
3: Separately, CIA Director William Burns is reportedly visiting Israel for meetings. The Biden administration is focused on about 240 hostages held by Hamas. Several of them are Americans. Former President Donald Trump is expected to take the stand today in his New York civil trial. A judge has already ruled that he and other co-defendants illegally boosted the value of some of their real estate properties so they could get better deals from banks. Trump denies the allegations and insists that they are political. Trump's two elder sons have already testified in the case. The White House says more than $16 billion will be spent on upgrades to the nation's busiest rail corridor. NPR's Joel Rose reports that corridor extends from Washington, D.C. to Boston.
6: President Biden logged so many miles on the train as a senator that he earned the nickname Amtrak Joe. Now his administration is announcing billions of dollars from the bipartisan infrastructure law to replace aging tunnels and bridges on the Northeast Corridor between Washington, D.C. and Boston. The projects will address some major choke points, including more than $4 billion to replace a 150-year-old tunnel in Baltimore, upwards of $3 billion toward a new tunnel under the Hudson River into New York City, and billions more to fix or replace bridges from Connecticut to Maryland. The White House says these projects will eventually yield faster and more reliable service, though some will take many years to complete. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington.
3: A former police officer in Louisville, Kentucky, is on trial in the 2020 shooting death of Breonna Taylor. Brett Hankison is charged with violating the civil rights of Taylor, her boyfriend, and others. From Louisville Public Media, Roberta Roldan reports Taylor was shot to death in a police raid on her apartment.
16: Prosecutors have accused Hankison of firing blindly through a covered window and sliding glass door, endangering Taylor and her neighbors. Last week, jurors heard from officers who also took part in the raid. They said his actions were dangerous and not something they would have done. They also heard emotional testimony from Brianna Taylor's sister, who described what it was like to have her closest friend killed by police. Prosecutors will call more witnesses this week before turning things over to Hankison's defense attorney. The trial is expected to last up to three weeks. For NPR News, I'm Roberto Roldan in Louisville.
3: You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Police in Cincinnati, Ohio are still looking for the person who fired into a crowd of children last Friday night. One 11-year-old boy was killed. Four more children and an adult were injured. Cincinnati police say someone pulled up near an apartment complex and fired 22 rounds into the crowd. France's Interior Minister says there have been more than a 1,000 anti-Semitic acts since Israel was attacked by Hamas. That's more than double the rate for all of 2022. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris. France is tense as the violence intensifies in the Middle East. France
24: has Europe's largest Jewish and Muslim populations, though there are an estimated 10 times as many Muslims as Jews. French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin said there has been an explosion of anti-Semitic acts. Nazi swastikas and buildings marked with stars of David, Jews have also received physical threats. The situation is compounded by France's far-left party, which is denouncing Israel and equating Zionism with colonialism. The French government says it stands behind Israel, but French President Emmanuel Macron has called for a humanitarian truce to get aid through
3: to Palestinian civilians. Eleanor Beardsley, in Pierre News, Paris. Investigators from the National Science Foundation's watchdog office will arrive today at the largest research hub in Antarctica. They'll review allegations of sexual misconduct in the U.S. Antarctic program. In surveys, 59 percent of women in this program say they had a negative experience with sexual harassment or sexual
0: assault. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Healy is hoping to make more room in the state's shelter system. She says she hopes more people will be able to leave the system and make room for other people who need housing. Healy says the state has been working with community organizations to place people. She tells WCVB's on the record that more than half of the families in the shelter system are from Massachusetts. We need to supercharge housing production in the state. Housing is out of reach for too many. And
5: it's not just an issue of the affordability of housing or lack of affordability for
0: families. It's also a competitive issue when it comes to business. Healy recently released a $4 billion bond bill in an effort to create more affordable housing. Boston City Councilor Frank Baker is closing out the last of his 12 years on the council. The race to fill his seat pits a longtime city employee against a public school teacher who's relatively new to Boston. And as WBUR's Simone Rios reports, neither candidate is likely to fully embrace Baker's style
13: on the council. Baker has carved out a spot for himself as the voice of old Boston. Observers say his opposition to the city council's progressives has emboldened and even isolated him with time. Baker admits Dorchester may be ready for someone who won't attract fights like he has.
10: I've served my purpose. I think the 12 years, it was a good 12 years. I think I've made a good name for myself. And quite frankly, my city council battery is, is worn out.
13: In the race for District 3, Joel Richards is the son of Jamaican immigrants and a Boston public school teacher backed by the teachers union. Baker has endorsed the other candidate, John Fitzgerald, a Dorchester native who's also won the support of former Mayor Marty
2: Walsh and the police officers union. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simon Rios.
0: The yearly effort to control the deer population at Blue Hills Reservation gets underway today. Archers will be able to hunt deer through November 22nd. Archery hunting is only allowed Monday through Thursday. Officials say hikers visiting the Blue Hills should wear bright colors. It's 8.07.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. The Patriots lost to the Washington Commanders yesterday in Foxborough.
0: The final was 20 to 17. It's the first time the path lost to Washington at home since 1996. They'll play the Indianapolis Colts next Sunday in Frankfurt, Germany. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. The Bruins skate with the Stars in Dallas. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be near 50. Cloudy with a chance of showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 40s. A cloudy start tomorrow, but becoming mostly sunny. It'll get to the mid-60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Los Angeles, California.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Former President Donald Trump is set to testify in a New York courtroom today.
13: Yeah, he's accused of conspiracy to falsify his property values. Trump's adult sons Eric and Donald Trump Jr. testified last week.
2: I'm apparently guilty of fraud for relying on my accountants to do, wait for it,
13: accounting. At stake is $250 million in penalties and a potential ban of doing business in the state of New York.
12: NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been following all of this, and she's with us now once again to tell us what to expect today. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning.
25: So why is Donald Trump testifying? Even before the trial began, the judge in the case ruled that Trump and his co-defendants, including his three oldest children, are liable for persistent and repeated fraud. The Trumps, the judge found, lied over and over about their property values in order to get better loans and insurance rates and avoid paying taxes. But there are still six more causes of action to rule on, including conspiracy charges and insurance fraud. And most importantly, how much Trump will have to pay because this is a civil case. The New York attorney general's office can question Trump about his knowledge of the scheme. And if he avoids answering or answers in a way the judge finds is untruthful, that can be used against him. That would seem to be risky for Mr. Trump. Yes. And already in this case, the former president was unexpectedly required to take the stand, and it did not go well. This was a couple of weeks ago during the testimony of Michael Cohen, who described how Trump would repeatedly ask him to reverse engineer property values to get the values up to where he wanted Outside the courtroom, Trump attacked, quote, a person who's very partisan sitting alongside the judge. Trump had already been fined and given a gag order for going after the judge's clerk. So the judge put Trump on the witness stand and asked Trump about that. Trump insisted he was talking about Cohen, not the clerk. But the judge found this, quote, hollow and untrue and not credible and fined Trump again. If the judge finds Trump not credible today, that could really work against him. And and what's Trump's defense to all of this? We've got a window into his likely testimony because of a deposition he gave last April. In it, he repeatedly referred to his golf courses and developments as Mona Lisa properties, with the worth set by the beholder. For example, Mar-a-Lago, he said, could fetch over a billion dollars when he paid $18 The Saudis, he said, would pay big money for a golf course in Turnberry, Scotland, and so on. But one of the biggest lines of defense he kept repeating is this. He referred to what he called a worthless clause in the statements of financial condition, that is a disclaimer that says banks should do their own appraisals. So whatever he, Donald Trump, attested to, he argued, didn't matter because the banks and other parties should have checked his work. Interesting. So
12: so that's the legal defense. Are, are there any other arguments we would expect him to make or we should expect him to make?
25: In his deposition, Trump kept talking about how the attorney general should be fighting violent crime, not suing him. He said that's what's bringing values down in New York. And his legal team spent a good deal of the end of the testimony last week attacking, again, the judge's clerk. They got a gag order for that. It's a way of undermining confidence in the proceeding that could all but end Trump's ability to do business in New York and force him to fork over hundreds of millions of dollars. Briefly, what's next? Trump's testimony is scheduled for just one day. Ivanka Trump testifies Wednesday, and then the AG rests her case. After that, defense witnesses.
12: That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. We've all read the stories or seen them in the news, or maybe we've lived it ourselves. Carjackings, public brawls, shootings, smash-and-grab robberies.
28: Baltimore police data reveals more than 7,000 cars have been stolen in the city so far. Two incidents, two young people shot.
12: Well, several other businesses have been burglarized over the past week. These are excerpts from Baltimore-area news reports. Now, violent crime is unsettling in any case, but what makes it even more disturbing is when kids are involved, as victims or as perpetrators, or both. And when it does happen, we often hear from the police or advocates or public officials. But kids who are involved in crime are rarely heard in all this. So we spoke with a group of teenagers in Maryland who've all been locked up in connection with violent crimes. The only restriction was that we identify them by their initials to maintain their privacy. In a later conversation, we're going to hear from Vincent Chiraldi. He's the secretary of Maryland's Department of Juvenile Justice. But first...
19: Once you build a deck of news. Timber and stuff. I mean, they want you to wait like over a year. Though. Right,
28: yeah, right, uh, right.
20: We right. stained this one when we built the place if it weren't for that. But yeah
12: to western maryland where young detainees from the backbone youth center made improvements to a daycare center as part of a habitat for humanity project they worked on stripping sanding and refinishing a deck to make it safe for little kids i worked alongside them it was hard work
19: are you going to hit this with an electric sander dave or not i mean no, should... i do okay
12: because that wears the wood
14: down well wood? It just, just gets in here one more thing yeah
12: That's where we met K.S., who's now 19. On a water break, he told us that this was his second stay at the youth center in four years, this time for assault charges after an argument with his girlfriend and a neighbor that landed the man in a hospital.
19: Most of my charges just came from me hanging out with the wrong people. Stolen cars, stolen four-wheelers, dirt bikes, fighting. Mm
12: -hmm. When did that start? How old were you when that started?
19: or 11, my first time being locked up. 13, and I was out with one of my buddies, and he just got the dumb idea to go steal a car, so my dumb followed him. (laughs) What what did he want
12: the car for? What did y'all want the car for?
19: I didn't want the car for any specific reason. He just said, hey, let's go get a car.
12: Have you ever had a charge involving a gun? No.
19: Yeah, I got an American flag tattooed down my arm. (laughs) My Second Amendment's important to me.
12: I understand that, but why do you think you've never used a gun in a crime?
19: Because, one, you catch a gun charge, you can't get any gun permits, you can't get your gun license. And then, once you catch your second gun charge, it becomes a felony.
12: Under state law, 33 types of crimes automatically send kids to be tried as adults before they can enter the juvenile detention system. What would make you stop?
19: I was 17 when I caught this charge. I sat in a jail cell on my 18th birthday. I was getting bailed out of a jail cell for my 18th birthday, and now I'm here for my 19th. Like, this was a blessing for me.
12: Why do you say it was a blessing for you?
19: Because I could have been doing 25 years.
12: K.S. says he has a lot of regret. Now, at 19, he's hoping to become a diesel mechanic once he's out, following a path carved out by his dad, sister, and older brothers. We also spoke with C.A. during his break. He was just 15 when he first got charged. It started, he says, with intimidating people to take what he wanted, and then it escalated. What do you think got it started for you?
30: Just trying to get money so I could basically have clothes and stuff
12: Not having the things you wanted or needed, like enough clothes, or not wanting to ask parents for things. That was an issue that came up over and over again. But another was boredom. Several kids told us they first got in trouble because they were bored, looking for something to do, and started hanging out with other kids who were bored and restless, and it went from there. What do you think made you want to do that? Being bored. Boredom, friends, and also fear of other kids. That also came up at our visit to the juvenile detention center in Baltimore. Are
30: you okay? All right, all right, okay. Okay. come on, man. All right. real.
12: That's where we met R right. S. He said he started carrying a gun when he was twelve. And when I asked him why, he looked incredulous and said because he needed one. But for kids who are robbing people and taking cars and whatever, why do you think they're doing it?
19: Some
33: people just let their daughter show off, have fun. They just want to have something. I don't, I don't got it coming up. Well, my name is Marco Thomas. I'm a case manager supervisor with the Department of Juvenile Services for 20 years. My take on it is this. They're bored. The youth that we serve, they make up stuff to do. And they're finding negative stuff to do to thrive that adrenaline. If we take some of that energy and use it in a positive direction, then we can start to see some progress. So is there something you really would like people to know about the kids you work with? Um, The only thing that I would say is these are our kids. These are the same kids that you're going to see downtown. These are the same kids that you're going to see, you know, at the mall, um, at the parks, or whatever the case may be, around your children. So, you know, in order to make this world a a better place, we need to help out all kids, regardless of where they're at.
12: At Thomas's facility, we also met Jason. It was his fourth stay there since he turned 14 four years ago.
30: I was bored with my homeboys, and I just said, let's go get a car. Like, how did you get the car? Like, yeah, I took it all.
12: Why did they give you the keys?
30: Fear, like it was in fear of me. Like uh-huh. He seen me and how aggressive, and not my aggression, I guess. I, I, I do hurt sometimes. Like I can't just walk in the world and be a regular person. Like I'm a monster sometimes. These like the people.
12: Hmm. How did that make you feel?
30: It didn't feel like it, like it was for meant for me to be doing. That's why I had to change my surroundings. And I went to selling drugs. And I, I like the money. It was me doing right for myself, doing right for my family, being able to get your mother some money.
12: What are you trying to do now?
30: I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to survive in this world. What would help you? A lot of these programs that he had going on in the community, that's going to help. There's a lot of good people out here that really want to see a black man prevail in this world. Instead of seeing him in a casket somewhere, Mm -hmm. or in a prison somewhere.
12: Boredom, friends, fear, feeling stuck wanting basics they didn't have and not believing they had any other way to get them, wanting to be somebody. People might not like what these kids had to say, but that's what they told us. Later, we'll hear what the head of the department responsible for juvenile justice has to say. His name is Vincent Schiraldi, and he's had a long career as both an activist and a public official. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Ivo Dalder discusses the benefits and drawbacks of a humanitarian pause versus a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. It's
26: 8.20. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition on view now, icaboston.org.
2: I'm Peter O'Dowd. In the spring of 2016, a wildfire ignited in the forests of northern Alberta that would forever change the lives of the people who lived in its path. The towering inferno turned 2,500 homes to ash and gave us a hint of what's to come.
20: We haven't seen what climate change has in store for us in the 21st century.
2: That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Mostly overcast today with a high near 50. It's 44 degrees in Boston.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Natalie Jones grew up believing she wasn't smart enough to go to college. That changed with her third act. She's one of several people we're profiling who reinvented themselves later in life in unusual and inspiring ways. Here's WBUR's Anthony Brooks on how Jones launched a new chapter as a divorced single parent caring for her family and pursuing her dream.
27: I used to come here with my kids. Late in the afternoon, we would bring supper. It was really peaceful.
20: On a recent afternoon, Natalie Jones looks out over the water in Hull, Massachusetts. The town occupies a narrow spit of land between the bay and the sands of Nantasket Beach.
27: The kids were so happy at the beach. I feel like it has some medicinal components to it that feeds my need for being near the ocean. I can't believe how hot it is.
20: I know, it's really hot. Uh,
27: right to the left of okay. the okay.
20: Natalie Jones, who's 76, long dreamed of living near the beach. Six years ago, she finally moved here, into a tidy second-floor condo where she can smell the ocean. Natalie grew up in Boston, a granddaughter of Italian immigrants. In 1969, when she was in the seventh grade, her school asked her to choose if she was college-bound or business-bound. She was just 12 years old.
27: I didn't even know what that meant. I think it was based on your family's economics, really. My mother just said, check off business. So the classes I took in the 7th and 8th grade were not college preparatory. But I never thought that I was smart enough to go to college because my mother, she would always say things like, I'm not very
20: smart, I never went past the 8th grade. After high school, Natalie got a job doing office work. She saved $500 and took off to Europe with a friend. They traveled to Spain, where she met a bartender from England.
27: He was from Liverpool, and he was working in this little town for the summer. I said, ooh, I really like him. It was love at first sight, and I ended up marrying him.
20: Natalie and her husband lived together in Spain for a couple of years and eventually came back to Boston. With no college education, he worked factory jobs and as a hairdresser. And for about 12 years, their life was fine. They had two sons. But by 1986, Natalie says their marriage was in crisis. Money was tight. She and her husband were at odds until he came home one one night night and and said...
27: I want a divorce. And it was like a kick in the stomach. And we sat down with the kids and we said, you know, mommy and daddy aren't happy living together, and so daddy's going to live somewhere else, but we're always going to be your parents. We're always going to love
20: you. Her husband moved out, and the marriage was over. At 41, Natalie was on her own with two sons, ages five and nine, a mortgage and no college degree. And that was it. That must have been a a really tough time for you and, and the boys.
27: Yeah. I mean, I never had any self-doubt about surviving. I just felt like somehow we're going to get through this.
20: Natalie worked hard, often juggling three part-time jobs, waitressing, delivering flowers, and office work before picking her kids up at school.
27: I was very concerned about my boys growing up without a good male role model.
20: So she joined a support group for families dealing with divorce and was invited to become a volunteer facilitator. She was good at it, but it wasn't going to pay the bills. So well into her 40s, Natalie pushed through that fear that she wasn't smart enough for college and began an academic journey that took her from Stonehill College to UMass Boston to pursue a degree in human services. I'm
27: walking across the parking lot with tears rolling down my eyes saying, oh my God, I'm in college. And I was just so thrilled to be
20: there. She earned her bachelor's degree in two thousand one, the same year her younger son graduated from high school.
27: So we had a big graduation party that day, for him and for me. I was just beaming, and my mother came and saw me going across the stage, and it was just—it was thrilling. It really was.
20: Natalie went on to earn a master's degree at fifty-nine and became a licensed clinical social worker. That was sixteen years ago, and she's still practicing. So what do you love about what you do right now?
27: Uh, You know, like I just got a new client that's 93 years old. I love hearing their stories and hearing what they struggle with and then trying to help them see a different way, changing their narrative.
20: Natalie Jones is among lots of older people who are living their third act, either out of choice or necessity or both. Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, a Harvard professor of education, is author of the third chapter, Passion, Risk, and Adventure in the 25 Years After 50. She says after she published the book back in 2009, she heard from lots of people like Natalie Jones.
11: Whether folks are highly educated, whether they have high incomes, they find a way of taking this risk and pursuing another way of giving to the world.
27: Oh, look at the egrets. Those are beautiful.
20: In her third act, Natalie Jones realized her dream to live by the ocean, discovered her self-confidence, and launched a new career helping herself and others.
27: You know, there was a poster on the wall of the church that I had belonged to, and it was, Faith is when you go out on a limb and you know something's going to catch you. I'm constantly saying to people, You can write your own script.
20: That's what Natalie Jones did. At 76, she says she plans to work well into her 80s, so her third act is far from over. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: Anthony will be back next Monday with another third act story. Have you reinvented your life in a surprising way? If so, tell us your story. Email us at thirdactstorygmail.com. At Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Challenges are cropping up as more communities across the country take up composting. It's 829.
32: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great with Rob Capolo, exploring songs by Joni Mitchell and Carole King, this Saturday at Jordan Hall, celebrityseries.org.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. As Israel continues attacking Hamas, the Hamas-Gaza Border Authority says it won't allow additional foreign nationals to cross into Egypt for now as it continues moving wounded Palestinians through the Rafah border crossing. Jason Shawa says he and his family are having no luck getting out.
10: My wife is Jordanian, my children Palestinian, and the Department of State is saying that they can't leave.
6: Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to testify today at his civil fraud trial in New York. As NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, Trump is expected to be questioned about how his company put together financial statements, which were later deemed to be fraudulent.
18: Trump is being accused of knowingly influencing how statements of financial condition were made at the Trump Organization. These statements have already been ruled as fraudulent by New York Judge Arthur Engoron. This is because they overstate the value of some of Trump's most popular properties, such as Trump Tower. Now, the state attorney general is arguing Trump and his sons Donald Jr. and Eric and several other business associates did this on purpose to get better banking and insurance deals. If found liable, Trump's ability to do future business in his home state could be limited, and he could face a $250 million fine. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, New York.
6: This is NPR News from Washington. The inspector general of the U.S. Army is being asked to provide details of Robert Card's interactions with the military before the reservists shot and killed 18 people at a bowling alley in a bar in Maine. The request comes from the state's two U.S. senators, Susan Collins and Angus King, in a letter to the inspector general. Some of Card's fellow soldiers expressed concerns about his mental health, before last month's attacks. A federal judge is scheduled to hear arguments today in a case that could affect voters in Arizona ahead of the 2024 elections. Wayne Shutsky, with member station KJZZ in Phoenix, says the lawsuit focuses on a new law and what it could mean for voters unable to prove their U.S. citizens.
8: The voting rights groups challenging the law say it could result in arbitrary and inaccurate enforcement that removes thousands of eligible voters from the rolls. In a previous order, U.S. District Court Judge Susan Bolton said there are legitimate questions about whether these so-called purge provisions violate federal civil rights and voting laws. Bolton already issued an order in September barring Arizona from enforcing parts of a separate law that attempted to require proof of citizenship for voters who register with a federal form. That federal form asks voters to declare under penalty of perjury that they're U.S. citizens, but it does not require documented proof of citizenship. For NPR News, I'm Wayne Chetsky in Phoenix.
6: Dow futures are up 14 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
8: From
0: WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Tomorrow is Election Day across Massachusetts. The Secretary of State's office says people who haven't sent in their mail-in ballots should not put them in the mailbox. They won't arrive in time. Instead, he says they should be returned in person to your local election office or a drop box. There are a number of local races in tomorrow's election, including those for city council in Boston. Get a breakdown of those races by visiting WBUR.org. A judge today will consider whether Brookline's ban on tobacco products sold to people born this century violates the law. In 2020, the town passed a rule that outlaws the sale of tobacco products to anyone born after January 1, 2020. Melrose, Wakefield, and Stoneham are moving ahead with similar measures. Critics argue the rule violates people's civil liberties. The lawsuit was already dismissed by a Massachusetts Superior Court judge last year. T riders will soon lose the ability to reload their Charlie cards on the T's website. The MBTA says it'll launch a new website next Wednesday. As part of that change, the My Charlie section of the website will be removed, and with that, riders will lose the ability to put money or passes on their Charlie cards. The T says riders who want to reload the cards will have to do that at a T station. It's 8:34. We're
11: funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach, committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The New England Patriots are now 2-7. and
0: seven. They lost to the Washington Commanders 20-17 to yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats will head to Germany next Sunday to play the Indianapolis Colts. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the Dallas Stars while the Celtics visit the Minnesota Timberwolves. Near 50 today under mostly cloudy skies. Upper 40s tonight, and there's a slight chance of showers. Tomorrow, cloudy skies gradually clear. We'll have a mostly sunny day in the mid-60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
21: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvin Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington,
13: D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The death toll is climbing in Gaza as the Israeli military wages war on militants who are dug into civilian centers. According to the Ministry of Health in Gaza, more than 10,000 have died in Israel's retaliatory strikes against Hamas. The ministry says most of the dead are civilians and more than 4,000 are children. Calls for a ceasefire are mounting, but even proposals for a humanitarian pause are being rejected by the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, here to talk about Israel's options, we've called on former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Evo Dollar. Ambassador, before we even get to the possibility of either a ceasefire or humanitarian pause, can you briefly define the difference between the two?
10: Uh, ESA, good morning. Uh, Ceasefire is really meant to stop the fighting and to move from fighting to negotiations or at least disengagement of forces in order to end the military phase of the conflict. A pause is designed to allow, to have a temporary stop in the fighting to allow something else to happen. And we've already seen a couple of pauses in at least the Israeli uh, fighting when hostages, uh, the four hostages, that have been released uh, were moving out of uh, Gaza and back into Israel. So one is temporary and designed to achieve something that's happening on the ground. The other is designed to be permanent and to end the military phase of the the conflict.
13: Why do you think Israel is so opposed to the idea of even a brief
10: pause? Well, uh, they are very, very worried that Hamas uh, will exploit anything that is happening uh, on the ground uh, to the benefit of Hamas, it's one of the reasons it's been so hard to get humanitarian assistance in. Uh, Israel doesn't want any fuel because they fear that fuel that might be meant for re, uh, for generators at hospitals will actually be diverted uh, to Hamas to allow it to fight. Uh, uh, Israel in response to Israel's incursion uh, into into Gaza. Uh, so even pauses don't make sense. But a ceasefire, which the U.S. also does not support, would mean that the military phase of the conflict is over and Israel still has as its goal the dismantling of Hamas, which has not yet been achieved.
13: Now, in its uh, October 7th attack on Israel, Hamas fighters captured more than 200 Israeli civilians and four nationals. If, uh, Ambassador, the Israeli government won't consider a ceasefire or a pause until those hostages are returned, how does that square with the international conventions of war?
10: Well, it's hard uh, to, uh, to square that. Uh, it's not... Uh impossible. Israel will insist and is insisting that it is using force in a proportionate manner uh, designed to only target uh, those who are direct combat combatants in uh, in the fight. Uh, but of course, uh, and, and it says that doing so is, is consistent with the laws of war. At the same time, the collateral damage as the military people call it, but what really means the uh, killing of many others uh, who are not combatants, who are civilians, that results from uh, the kind of strikes that Israel has been uh, conducting uh, is, uh, is extraordinary and indeed leading to the calls of a ceasefire. And this push by the Biden administration to say, you need to really find a way uh, to allow uh, the war to be fought in a more discriminate way that does not necessarily affect all of these civilians, which is truly a horrific uh, occurrence of this war.
13: That is veteran diplomat Evo Dollar, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, now president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, ambassador, thanks.
10: Thank you.
12: The maker of the popular video game Fortnite will begin a fight today with higher stakes than you will find in one of its typical online
13: battles. Epic Games will be in federal court in San Francisco for the beginning of an antitrust case against Google. Now, Epic claims Google has a monopoly over developers because of the way it runs its app store. The online search giant says a victory for Epic would damage a business model that has delivered lower prices for customers.
12: Eddie Robertson is a senior tech and policy editor for The Verge and has been following this case. And it's with us now to tell us more. Good morning. Morning. So could you just tell us more about how Epic Games and Google got to the point where they've ended up in court?
26: So Epic, as mentioned, runs Fortnite. And Fortnite is a free-to-play game. It makes a lot of its money by selling virtual currency through its app. And because of that, it pays what is derided as a Google tax, which is a commission that Google takes on in-app purchases, not just for video games, but for a lot of apps and a smaller fee for subscriptions. And so, it updated its game in 2020 to add a new way of paying that offered cheaper prices to customers and didn't use Google's payment system. Google banned it from the store. And then Epic sued saying that this was a demonstration of how Google maintains an illegal monopoly. It did the same for Apple. And there was another lawsuit that went to trial in 2021.
12: Yeah, tell me about that. I'm not an expert here, but that sounded familiar. So you're reminding us that Epic sued Apple for much the same thing. How did that work out?
26: That ended up in what's largely considered a victory for Apple, mm-hmm. that the judge determined that Apple had the right to run its model. It didn't have to open up its app store, although it did have to make some changes in how it let app developers tell users about potential other ways to pay. But that case is currently going up. Uh, they're attempting to get it to the Supreme Court, so we don't know what the final outcome is going to be. So, so how is this case different? This case, in some ways, is just another attempt at the another sort of bite at the same apple, although it's not apple this time. But among other things, it's going up in front of a jury. So the arguments uh, instead of a judge. So the arguments could be a little bit different. They could focus a little more on just trying to sway a jury about the basic monopoly arguments here. But I think that it's still in some ways an uphill battle for Epic. How come? Why do you say that? We've seen a lot of antitrust cases over the last few years. And in a lot of cases, it's been just very difficult to make the argument that prices are getting raised or that people are getting locked out, especially when the services involved are cheap or pretty free, Mm -hmm. that um, a lot of these services, the tech companies involved can say, look, it's really easy to just go and switch to another website or another app store or buy another phone.
12: And this is big because as briefly as you can, this is this is a big deal, not just for video game fans, because
26: if you own a phone, an Android phone especially, Epic's claim is that you're paying higher prices than you need to for things that you buy inside apps. That there are entire business models that have been harder because if you're selling a virtual good, like not just a video game purchase, but uh, an ebook or an audiobook, then those things get slapped with this fee that's higher than Epic argues it should be. And so they're saying they want to open this up. Meanwhile, Google is saying that Android is a viable competitor to Apple because of this method they have.
12: That is Eddie Robertson of the Verge. Eddie, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the growing trend among employers to offer benefits and accommodations for workers going through menopause. Mostly cloudy in upper 40s today. Tonight it stays in the 40s and remains overcast. There's a slight chance of showers overnight and into tomorrow morning. Then clearing skies make way for a mostly sunny day in the mid-60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Massachusetts business leaders have mixed feelings of optimism and p- pessimism about the state of the economy. That's according to the latest Business Confidence Index from the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Christopher Geerin is the organization's executive vice president. He says last month's survey still showed a slightly better outlook compared to the month before.
10: The monthly increase in October was driven in large part really by a little bit brighter outlook on both the Massachusetts economy and the U.S. economy. Both of those had had slipped a bit in the previous couple of months.
0: Guren says many employers point to the inability to find qualified workers and high housing costs as reasons for their pessimism. The headquarters of Peabody-based Analogic Corp. could soon serve as a warehouse for dozens of businesses. The Centennial Park site was previously eyed by Amazon for a warehouse. That deal fell through. The Eagle Tribune reports the site would employ around 1,000 people. Analogic is still working out details for its relocation. It's
32: 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Elliot Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR
12: News.
13: I'm Michelle Martin. Anime Martinez. Food waste takes up a lot of landfill space. Turning that garbage into something good for the earth is the goal of a growing number of community composters, but not all cities welcome the effort. Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports.
18: There's an urban farm in Kansas City, Missouri, called Herbivore. That's where owners Brooke Savaggio and Daniel Hurrier hold a scoop of what they call black gold. If you smell it, it just smells like fertility, you know? I love it. Yeah, I
34: mean, it just smells like really rich soil. And when we put it out on the fields, it becomes really rich soil.
18: That black gold is compost made from food scraps and some yard waste either dropped off by area residents or collected by the couple's other business. It helps keep those items out of landfills where they would rot and produce methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. Savaggio says the compost is improving the farm's yields. However, a few neighbors find it more of a nuisance than a benefit. They've complained to the city about bad smells and pests. And the city now says the operation requires a special use permit. Hurrier says the city gave them permission to expand two years ago and should not be creating obstacles to manage food waste sustainably.
8: I want to create more compost hubs like this. Certainly the city of Kansas City should be helping us do that.
18: There are thousands of composting operations in the U.S., but the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says only about 300 are so-called community composters that make and use the product locally. Brenda Platt of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says community composting can be a challenge since cities often don't have updated zoning rules that address composting specifically.
31: Local governments can either say, oh, you've got a problem, or they can help these operations that support their communities to overcome the
18: obstacles. In the past six years, the number of community composters in the United States more than doubled. Most are in New York and California. They're also on the rise in the Midwest, but it's much less of a priority, says Jennifer Trent. She's a program manager at the University of Northern Iowa's Waste Reduction Center.
24: A lot of times it's a preconceived idea or notion that compost sites are foul places and that they won't be beneficial to the community.
18: She says composting is not a nuisance if it's done right. And bad smells can be reduced, even in outdoor operations, by combining the materials in a specific way.
24: If you have a compost site that's not complying with the regulations, enforce those laws. You know, don't allow them to continue until it's fixed.
18: The U.S. Composting Council says having good zoning laws, enforcing them, and educating residents about composting helps make sure everything runs smoothly. When Ben Stanker wanted to start his business, Greenbox Compost, in Wisconsin, a lot of municipalities told him no. But he says officials in Sun Prairie, a suburb near Wisconsin's state capital, were willing to change a zoning code for his business.
8: It just happened to be that Sun Prairie, you know, really rolled out the welcome mat and and helped us kind of work through this.
18: Stanger is composting indoors with containers to prevent nuisances. And the city is also doing its part by educating residents, says Jake King, a spokesperson for Sun Prairie.
14: We really try to look at that public outreach and engagement so people know what we're doing, and most importantly, know why we're doing it.
18: That's the challenge for many cities, figuring out how to battle climate change and manage waste in ways that residents will embrace. For NPR News, I'm Eva Tesfai in Kansas City.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm I Martinez.
12: And I'm Michelle
0: Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on a noxious smog covering the Indian capital of Delhi and a look at the autobiography of Barbara Streisand. It's 849.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Two years ago, a former detective set out to track down an uncle who had been missing for decades.
19: It says the date of death was July 19th, 2020, which would have made Uncle Caesar 64 years old. And it says place of disposition is City Cemetery at Hart Island.
7: We continue the Unmarked Graveyard series on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit the West Bank, Iraq, and Turkey as the White House encourages a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. Former President Donald Trump is expected to testify in his civil fraud trial in New York today. And Maine officials are asking the U.S. Army Inspector General to provide an account of all interactions with the man who shot and killed 18 people in Lewiston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR
32: app. WBUR supporters include H&H, take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park, Handel's Messiah, three performances November 24th through 26th. HandelandHeiden.org. It'll be mostly cloudy and near
0: 50 today. Still overcast tonight and in the 40s. There's a slight chance we'll see some showers overnight and into early tomorrow. Then it'll gradually become a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Temperatures will rise to the mid-60s. It's 45 degrees in Boston.
35: Is the Google Play Store unfair to players?
24: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Fidelity, a dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
35: I'm David Brancaccio in New York. What can we learn about money, markets, and business from the huge video game industry? We call our project here, Skin in the Game. Today, a lesson from the headlines on antitrust. A civil trial is set to start today, pitting video game maker Epic against Google. A jury in San Francisco will decide whether Google's App Store uses monopoly power to unfairly drive up prices
16: for app developers and game players. If this case sounds familiar, it's because Epic sued Apple over similar claims. The video game maker says both the iOS and Android mobile operating systems coerce users of Epic's popular Fortnite game to make in-app purchases through Apple's and Google's payment system, ensuring the tech giants get a cut of revenues. Epic wants to be able to include an alternative payment method that bypasses Apple's and Google's transaction fees. For the most part, Epic lost its battle against Apple, and both sides are appealing. Now it's Google's turn, and ahead of the trial, the company agreed to settle with other plaintiffs who were involved, 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, as well as Match Group, the operator of dating apps. Google agreed to pay Match $40 million and give it access to its so-called user choice billing system announced last year. Through that system, Google charges a lower service fee. Epic has dismissed that option, saying it still allows Google to tax transactions. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace.
35: The House of Representatives is expected to vote on its transportation funding bill this week. That vote was postponed last week. After protests, it cuts too much money from Amtrak. The legislation
11: would fund the departments of transportation, housing, and urban development. It's one of 12 funding bills Congress needs to pass and the president needs to sign to fund the federal government each year. But the House version of the bill would cut Amtrak funding by about a billion dollars. It would claw back funding from infrastructure legislation Congress passed and President Biden signed in 2021. The White House says the proposed cuts would force Amtrak to reduce most of its long distance rail service, run fewer trains, along the popular Northeast Corridor and scale back or postpone almost 400 capital projects. In September, a group of House Republicans signed on to a letter to then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy protesting the cuts to Amtrak. The letter says Amtrak needs to be fully funded so it can rebuild bridges and tunnels, invest in stations and route improvements, and replace aging trains. As is, the House bill is unlikely to pass the Senate, and even if it did, it would be vetoed by President Biden. I'm Nancy
35: Marshall Genzer for Marketplace. I could see S&P and Nasdaq futures reach up two tenths percent. And during this time of year for picking benefits during open enrollment at work, we look at menopause benefits. It's streamable from our homepage. If you miss our story on the air today.
24: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on think or swim. More at schwab.com. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across
35: all enterprise
24: data. C3.AI, this is Enterprise AI.
35: It happened going into October. The U.S. drove off what some call the childcare cliff, the deadline for childcare providers, to spend $37 billion in federal pandemic era subsidies. Now that the money is done, There's a forecast that tens of thousands of childcare programs will close. Here's Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes.
34: It's lunchtime at downtown Baltimore Childcare, and the preschoolers are getting ready for a race.
12: I'm gonna race. Oh, you wanna have a milk race with me?
34: To see who can drink their milk first.
27: Let's go
23: for it.
34: The kids and teacher Ebony Goins all down their cups. My bones are now strong. Goins is one of 85 teachers here. The organization prides itself on having one teacher for every seven preschoolers. That allows for fun activities like that milk race. Downtown Baltimore Child Care received just over a million dollars in federal pandemic relief funds. Some of that bought gloves and bleach, but the vast
15: majority went towards paying those teachers. It was very important for us to keep all of our employees in jobs and in health benefits.
34: Executive Director Hillary Roberts King says now that the federal money is gone, she is fundraising and applying for grants. She's also keeping an eye on costs, putting off replacing the windows, for instance, and giving smaller raises than she would have liked. This past year,
5: we had to do 4% for people who make less and 2% for people who make more. And it wasn't great news.
34: The employees here make at least $15 an hour, which is more than a dollar over the median wage for childcare workers across the country. Still, Roberts King says having less money to pay employees affects her ability to hire. It also affects current staff members.
27: You know, it's just the pay in this career is not enough.
34: <laughs> Tiffany Thornton is a teacher with downtown Baltimore Childcare. She loves the work, but says she still has to supplement her income. I've been here 20 years, and I still do side jobs, like I babysit on the side. I do Instacart on the side. Thornton has held off having kids of her own. She is worried she wouldn't be able to afford it. She's 39. You know, I don't have a lot of time to
12: figure that out. You know, I'm getting older, but
34: no, I don't have kids. And that's one of the
27: reasons why childcare is expensive. The pay doesn't match, what is it, the
33: economy right now.
34: Thornton says she'll stick with the job because she is, at her core, an early childhood educator. But others have left the industry. There's more than 38,000 fewer child care providers now than in February 2020. In Baltimore, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
35: And there are still some unsettling messages on the sites and apps of many banks this morning after some kind of glitch at the private system that processes direct deposits known as the TCH, the clearinghouse. It affected some payments this past Friday, November 3rd. Banks have promised to sort it out. For instance, Bank of America's app, This morning is still warning that some deposits may be temporarily delayed, but that accounts are secure and the balance will be updated. However, customers will want to know that no other checks bounced or credit scores were affected because of this. We are monitoring. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. American public media.
0: Mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will rise to near 50. Tonight will stay overcast and it'll be in the 40s. There's a slight chance of showers overnight and into early tomorrow morning. Then it'll gradually clear up on Tuesday for a mostly sunny day in the mid 60s. Wednesday, sunny and upper 40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford, and online, une.edu.
20: I'm executive producer of podcasts, Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app
9: or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.